Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. The Our Father is probably the most famous prayer in the world. Most of us can even recite it without even thinking. It begins with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We're going to stop right there. Thy kingdom come. What is Jesus referring to when he says that? There are actually a couple of kingdoms of God that we have to look forward to. So what is he talking about here? When will it start? What will it look like? As the angel sounds the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, we are introduced to the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. But wait a minute. I thought when we got to Revelation 11 and the seventh trumpet, we're in the middle of the tribulation. So how could we be seeing God's kingdom come? That's an important question that we're going to answer today. I'm Debbie Blank. Thanks for joining our continued verse-by-verse examination in Revelation. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Have you ever been to an athletic event when something happens early on that settles the outcome and everyone knows the game is essentially over? The victory of God and His kingdom over the kingdom of the world has been assured to us throughout Scripture. We know how this is going to end. In Revelation 11, we just saw the beasts and his followers celebrating their apparent victory over the two witnesses when just a breath from God resurrects each of them in front of the whole world and they are taken to heaven. After a subsequent earthquake, the survivors all give glory to God. God's victory is obvious. It's all over but the shouting. And now we do hear shouting, shouts of praise and victory coming from heaven in Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. Jackie, you just gave us a little review. So I want to go back a little further to Revelation 8, 13, which says, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels, which are about to sound. So the first woe was when the angel blew the fifth trumpet. And we know that that was locusts coming up out of the abyss and stinging people for five months. The second woe was the sixth trumpet. That was a 200 million man army where a third of the world died. And then later in that discussion of the sixth trumpet, we saw those two witnesses killed that you talked about. We learned the discussion of the temple, that there would be a temple built. And then these two witnesses that you just mentioned. And as we think about them, it's so exciting to realize that they had a mission to go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do too. We're called by God to do that. We can look at those two witnesses as examples of how we should take God's word very seriously and what we should be doing in life, called to do it just as those two witnesses were doing. As we come to the middle of the tribulation period, we're seeing a paradigm shift from bad things that happened. You might even say the tribulation period versus the great tribulation where Satan is empowered and he empowers the Antichrist, and the false prophet to do his bidding. So there's consummate evil on the face of the earth from now on. Now, it wasn't easy and pretty the first half of the tribulation, but this is going to be worse because this isn't just problems or tribulation. This is evil. Satan is pouring out his plans on this world. But it's also at this time, 
that we see God establishing his kingdom. So it's, it's kind of a strange situation that we're going to discuss. It's really interesting to read verse 15 when it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. It's sort of a surprising thing to hear this particular point in time. Like you said, we know what's ahead, and yet we know what's ultimately ahead. This is written as if it is already accomplished because it's a sure thing. Well, first it starts out by saying that there were loud voices in heaven. That's interesting as we start the seventh trumpet with that. When the trumpet started in Revelation 8.1, at the end of the seventh seal and the beginning of the trumpets, there was silence in heaven. So after the first seven judgments, silence, and now there's loud voices. Interesting difference. I think the difference is the silence is because all these woes are going to start coming now on the earth. And there was a real reverential silence in heaven because of that. And now there's loud voices shouting because God is going to reign. Finally, he's going to reign. But before he reigns, we see in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. What's the kingdom of the world? Well, that's Satan's kingdom. That's Satan's domain. He's been in charge of the world ever since the Garden of Eden. Now, I say that. There's a caveat there. Ultimately, God is sovereign. He's in control over everything. But because sin entered the world and man became sinners, Satan became the god of this world. We know that from 1 John 5, 19, that says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the evil one does have that power right now of the world. And Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He goes on to say, And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But he rescued us from this domain of darkness that is in the world today. The consummate sin that draws men to making themselves their idols or following other idols rather than following God. That's the domain of darkness. That's the power of the evil one in this world. And in John 12, 31, we're told judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So he only has temporary control, but he does have control now until the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ enter into the scene. We know when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they had been given dominion over all of those things by God. But when they decided to follow Satan's lies, then they defaulted and Satan took over. That's what's been in operation all this time. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and redeemed us from our sins, he also redeemed the world so that he has what we have referred to as the title deed to the earth. And so it's his kingdom as well. In that verse that you read about transferring us from the one kingdom to the other, now that's possible because Jesus died for us. It's possible to exist in the kingdom of the world, but we're not of that kingdom. We are of the kingdom of of Jesus Christ. And so it's possible for those to exist at the same time. And the whole idea of being transferred from that dark, terrible kingdom to the kingdom of God is glory to God. It is, and we saw that actually when Satan tempted Jesus at the Mount of Temptation. One of the things he said was, I will give you, Jesus, all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. 
So Satan's acknowledging that he has control over the world. And yet he's speaking to Jesus Christ, who's God, who has complete authority and control over this world. So Satan continues on by saying, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we have those two kingdoms going on here in the world. As we come to the middle of the tribulation, we'll see next week how Satan is thrown down to the earth, knowing he only has a short period of time. So it's going to get worse. He's going to be fighting like crazy to take control of this world. But this passage tells us that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Clearly it hasn't. It isn't going to become God's kingdom for three and a half years when Christ returns. But what this passage is saying is it's using the Greek words to let us know that this decision has already been made. God has won. The control is being taken over by God and his kingdom is going to reign. But the time sequence, because of the Greek verb here, isn't until a different time period than what we're seeing now. It's kind of like getting married. You tell people when you're engaged, you're going to get married. Well, is that marriage tomorrow or a year from now or five years from now? It's not necessarily right away, but you know it's coming That's what the verb tense means right here when it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior. When we talk about the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, there are two examples from the book of Daniel where these prophecies are about the latter days and seem to picture the kingdoms of the world and the Uh kingdom of God. We see that in Daniel 2, where we have this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel's interpretation of that dream. He listed the four world powers that that statue represented. And then finally, a fifth world power, the Ten Toes. And at the time of that world kingdom, there's a stone that will destroy all the other kingdoms. In Daniel 2.44, it reads, In the days of those kings, that's the Ten Toes kingdom, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. That's a promise of God's kingdom to come. This kingdom will be forever and ever, according to Revelation 11.15. And then, as you mentioned Daniel again in Daniel 7, 9 through 11, the passage reads, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And you think, wow, that could be any time that we have the kingdom of God in heaven. But it's not because the passage goes on to read. Then I kept looking because of the sound of boastful words, which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. The context here is the Antichrist known here as the horn or the little horn is going to be destroyed by God. And it's at that time that God will establish his kingdom on earth. The 1000 year millennial reign that has been promised throughout the whole Old Testament. And we will discuss when it happens in Revelation 20. 
That's the kingdom where Jesus will reign on earth with his resurrected saints and all those who make it through the tribulation believing in Jesus Christ. You said the word fire several times in here. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. And I'm wondering, in other passages, fire seems to indicate judgment. And as we look a little further into that verse, the court sat and the books were opened. That's the part of the kingdom coming that's being referred to as the judgment. Yes. And remember that in the book of Revelation, the word wrath is one of the prominent words. And that is God pouring out his judgment. You have an orge wrath, which is God's mental judgment that is going to be poured out, which is a thumos wrath when it actually is brought upon in judgment on the world and an unbelieving world. So yes, fire and judgment go hand in hand there. Now I had mentioned earlier that there's really more than one kingdom. The passage here, the context is talking about the kingdom that Jesus will establish when he returns three and a half years later from what we're reading in Revelation 11. But there's another kingdom and that's the eternal heaven. The eternal kingdom where there will be no throne. God in the form of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will reign forever in that eternal heaven. The new Jerusalem which will come down out of heaven. We'll talk about that when we get to Revelation 21. So that's another kingdom that we know about. And then you have a third kingdom, and that's often referred to by Jesus. And that's a kingdom of heaven, which really is brought about here on earth through his believers, where because we are now believers in Jesus Christ, we now have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have a kingdom of God here on earth. Fellowship of believers, you might say, the ecclesia, the called out church that is part of God's kingdom here on earth, sharing the gospel, leading other people to this kingdom on earth that we might know until we get to eternity. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we're ushering in Christ's kingdom on earth by what we're doing. I'm just saying that as fellowship of believers, we have a form of the kingdom of heaven that happened because Jesus came the first time. So those of us who are on earth right now, there are essentially two kingdoms going on, and and the one is the kingdom of the world, which by default we belong to until we have that opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ, to depend on his redemption of us, in which case then we're transferred, like in that verse, from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. And so when John the Baptist would say, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent because the kingdom of God is near, then that's the kingdom that we can transfer into today. That's right. Let's go back to Colossians 1.13 that you're talking about. It reads, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's the kingdom of the world, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that's our eternal kingdom, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means that Christ paid the penalty for us. It's just as if we'd not sinned because he went before the judge, God Almighty, having cleansed us by his death on the cross and his blood. And therefore, our sin was redeemed. And when we will believe in him, we are transferred, as you said, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. But that does not happen automatically. It only happens when we are willing to say no to the world, when we are willing to recognize that we are sinners, that we need that Redeemer, the Redeemer and the redemption that Christ did for us on the cross. We need that. 
because we can't make our way into heaven due to our sin. Therefore, if we will confess Jesus as Lord, believing that he's God and died for our sins, then rose again to conquer death, we will be saved. Then verse 10 reads, for with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. It's a heartfelt decision, but we have to make it. Otherwise, we die having been living only in this world and we will have the eternal consequences away from God forever in hell if we don't make that decision now. We look around and we see the kingdom of this world and how horrible it is and all the destruction and illness and dissension and just all the horrible things that go, war, all these things that come with the kingdom of the world. And you think, why would anybody choose to stay with the kingdom of the world? It's doomed. And so why not belong to the kingdom of God? Because that's the one that's going to last forever. Sounds like a challenge. Why not ask God to show you his self, his truth, his word, his gospel message, and his spirit. And he'll do that. If we seek him with all of our hearts, we will find him. That's what the Bible says. Many people do and did. If we go back to Revelation eleven sixteen, it reads, And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to thee, O Lord our God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken thy great power and have begun to reign. So they are praising God. Again, I love this book of Revelation. As we look at it, yes, there's future wrath. Yes, there's judgment. Yes, there's catastrophes that occur. But this book is all about the revelation of Jesus Christ and worshiping him. We see in chapter four, worshiping God on the throne. And in chapter five, we see Jesus, who is the only one worthy to take the scroll because he's the lamb who was slain. We see then also in chapter seven, the great multitude worshiping in heaven. Now again, we see these elders that we saw before and the living creatures and everyone in heaven worship. God. That's what our focus needs to be, is worshiping God and looking to our future, our hope in Jesus Christ, not just the current circumstances. That's why they could say that God has great power and he has begun to reign. That's an assertion of fact. It's the aorist indicative active voice in the Greek, which means it will happen, but it doesn't specify the time it's going to happen. And the action is going to be accomplished by the subject, which is Jesus Christ. He's the one who has great power and is going to begin to reign. The glory of that scene is just so wonderful. If you put yourself into that situation, the 24 elders that are there worshiping and their reaction is to fall on their faces and worship. Now, I don't know the last time you fell on your face and worship. You don't see that real often, but, you know, this is their reaction So it's just so overwhelming, the glory of God and his reign. And so they're so happy. They're so blessed. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. What this sounds like to me is we're coming into judgment, but it's justice, What's right is going to be made right, and what's wrong is going to be dealt with. 
Don't we all long for that? When we see the injustices in the world, it's just so difficult. So we'll rejoice at that time when justice is meted out and things are right and fair. Things are made right. These are more of the promises of God, of things that he's going to accomplish over the next three and a half years. He starts out by saying the nations were enraged. Uh, Yeah, they were enraged at everything that was going on. And thy wrath came. That's orge wrath. That's God's mental wrath. It's not continuous here, according to the aorist active indicative tense. It doesn't specify the time, but God's wrath is coming. And the time came for the dead to be judged. We know the dead are going to be judged through a lot of the judgments that are going to take place the last half of the tribulation period. But certainly after Jesus returns, he's going to judge the people on the earth. And then eventually, before eternity starts, eternal judgment against those who have not believed are going to take place. And then it says, and the time to give their reward to the bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear his name, the great and the small. So we have a time that we're going to go through judgment. Now we're going to be up in heaven. So our judgment is going to take place in heaven, not here on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to be recompensed or receive rewards for the deeds that we have done in the body, whether they be good or bad. So we have a judgment that we're going to experience in heaven. From that judgment, we're going to receive rewards for the things that we did that honored God and were what God called us to do and equipped us to do. Now, we're not going to be judged on sin. We're already in heaven. Our sins were forgiven with Christ on the cross. So our judgment is not for sin. It's for the deeds that we've done in the body. So this passage tells us that we're going to go through judgment, but it's going to be a glorious judgment of rewards. They're going to go through judgment, and it's going to be a horrible time. I can't imagine. It finally ends in that passage, verse 18, by saying, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's a promise. Remember back in the fifth seal, the martyrs cried out, how long, O God, before you avenge our blood? Well, now he's saying we're going to destroy those who destroy the earth. That's the Antichrist. That's Satan. Those are the people from Armageddon. Those are the sheep and the goat judgments that are going to take place. God is going to bring judgment. And the passage finally ends in Revelation eleven nineteen by saying, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peal of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Well, that's interesting because in Revelation 8, 5, it uses the same symbolism when again, people were able to see what was going on in heaven. At that time, in Revelation 8, 5, it says the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And they were followed by peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So when things are coming out of heaven, whether it be from the altar or whether it be that the heavens are opened up and they see the Ark of the Covenant, all kinds of heavenly examples like lightning and thunder and then earthly examples like earthquakes are going to happen because the glory of God is being seen now here on earth in the midst of all of these struggles and trials. What a time this is going to be. Debbie, as I'm looking at verse 19 and the glorious vision that we're being given, the temple of God, which is in heaven, which was the perfect temple. Now, anything that was built 
by Moses or by Solomon or whatever was a pattern based on what the perfect was in heaven. Here we get to see the real thing in heaven open. This is so exciting, really, because people talk about the Ark of the Covenant all the time. Here we get to see in heaven the real Ark of the Covenant. And I'm just wondering what the reason for us seeing the Ark of the Covenant at this point is. I don't know if people on the earth are actually going to see the Ark of the Covenant in heaven or if God's going to open heaven up so that he can pour out his wrath on the world. Or to give the people on the earth a picture of his coming, full glory, the Shekinah glory of God. I'm not quite sure how this is going to turn out. I do know, as you said, that this is the perfect tabernacle. In Hebrews, we learn that everything else was a copy. So that there is an Ark of the Covenant in a temple in heaven because the Bible says there is. We know from Hebrews 8, where it reads in verses 1 and 2, The main point in what we have said is that we have such a high priest who's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Then in verses four and five of Hebrews eight, it reads, now, if he were on earth, meaning Jesus, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy of the shadow of the heavenly things. Then it goes on in verse five and says, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he was told, see that you make all things according to the pattern, which was shown you on the mountain. Everything on earth that we've seen is a pattern of the glory of God. We've always talked about how the tabernacle on earth, every article points to Jesus Christ, how the temple points to Jesus Christ and all the articles in it. Well, now we understand why, because there's a perfect temple in heaven and people, somebody is allowed to see it. Maybe it's just the people in the heavenlies allowing it to be seen as it's open. Maybe it's people on earth, but people are actually going to be able to understand more about God as he pours out his Shekinah glory. In Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, it says the same thing. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the things in the heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Wow, is it going to be exciting. And again, we continue to see God pouring out his love on mankind, even when man's turning against him. You see the worship in heaven. And one day, if we believe in Jesus, we're going to be up there worshiping with them. And then we see God opening up heaven so that somehow, some way, perhaps people will see a glimpse of the temple of God. How Would lives be changed if they had just one quick glimpse into the glory of God? Things are not always as they seem when we think that this is the kingdom of the world, but it's also the kingdom of God. And we're looking forward to his true millennial kingdom being ushered in. We need to focus on Jesus not on the problems of this world, because our hope is in the future, not on our personal struggles. That's why Matthew 6, 33 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. 
we have a hope for the future. And even in the middle of the tribulation period, God is focusing on that hope for the future for those people in the tribulation period rather than the problems at hand. If Jesus is coming soon, things are going to get really bad. And our only hope to walk through them and for the future is with Jesus. Will you turn to Jesus today? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you don't leave us to our own resources, but you always reach out and bring people into your kingdom. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.